give a command in German, you guys are dead. Okay? So Gus here, he was born uh, about four years ago, and I happened to be in Manitoba at the time, and this guy came out the size of a mouse, and they were so small, and then uh, my wife had been working on me to get a dog, but I like dogs, and as you can see, this is not really a dog. (laughs) So she was working me, working me, working. I took so long that she had this eye on this female and then this female and then maybe that. And then finally, by the time I said, okay, we can get a dog or we can get a whatever. Um, this guy was the only thing left. He, he was the runt, right? He doesn't know it. So little runty here, I mean, sorry, little runty here, he came to us um, from Manitoba. So he, on his first road trip, he made all the way out here. And uh, I think he owes me a lot because he has no idea what Manitoba winters and mosquitoes and all that stuff are about. So I think you owe me a ton. Okay. But anyway, he's the runt. What are runts good for? So I just thought here, let's can come here. Okay. Sit. Can you see that? Sit. Lie down. Lie down. Roll over. Scratch yourself. Okay. Come here. Okay, lie down, roll over. Hey, come on. (laughs) Roll over, roll over, all the way, roll all the way over, roll over. You're making me look bad. You're not helping the sermon whatsoever. Gussie, okay, dance, how about dance? All right, good boy. Okay, now lie down and roll over. Hey! Okay, now sit, sit, stay. Stay. Okay, sit. Once again, stay. Stay. Woohoo! Good job. Come on, give him some love. There we go, perfect. So, uh, that kind of illustrated that God can use runts. So here, the, the runt of the litter. In fact, he's the second runt I've had. And the one before that uh, was Ludwig. Ludwig ist mein Hund. And Ludwig also was a leftover. Nobody wanted him. And I couldn't believe that these runts, these ones that are the last to the teeth of the mother, end up being fantastic, teachable dogs. So all that stuff, I probably taught him within the first day that I met uh, Gussie. He was just really easy to train. And... Um, When I look at scripture, it seems as though, right from the list of the disciples to King David and beyond, it seems as though the Lord has a special place in his heart for runts. So that doesn't mean you can't be good looking or that you can't be successful or whatever, but it seems that at some point, there is this principle in scripture that we need to come to the Lord with a runtish 
attitude or a runtus view of ourselves, or we need to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift us up. So for, before we continue on with this narrative of King David, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for beautiful stories and accounts in scripture that make us feel right at home. There's sometimes we look at amazing results, but then we look into the history of the person where the results came through, and we see that a huge God worked through a runt, or a huge God worked through somebody that was humble. A huge God worked through somebody that didn't think much of themselves and was just going about their business. And Lord, you work in mysterious and amazing ways. So we give this to you this morning and we just ask that you'd also help us to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and lift us up. If this morning there's somebody here that simply is finding it hard to get out of bed, struggling with depression, they're feeling very runtish in spirit, I would ask that you would lift them up. If this morning, if somebody's here thinking that they don't have one spiritual gift, I just pray that you take some time and uh, help them to take time to go for a walk this afternoon and realize that you have given each one of your beautiful children a gift of the Spirit and help them, Lord, to just recognize it because most often people are using them already and they don't really necessarily label it. So thank you for that. And I ask, Lord, this morning that uh, if some of us are struggling perhaps with pride, that you would help us to humble ourselves so that we can be lifted up and used as a conduit of your great mercy and love to a hurting world, a culture that needs you badly. So Lord, we give all of this to you and we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In your Bibles, let's continue the story of David. And as, as you can tell, I've been going backwards. I started with some cool stuff of his later life and I went backwards last week and this week I'm going backwards once again. So 1 Samuel chapter 16, you all have your Bibles since I've admonished you about three weeks ago to bring them. So three weeks ago, I think I said that, and what, maybe what we should do is in Sunday school, what they do is they get points, they get Bible bucks. And if they bring friends or if they bring their Bible, they get a Bible buck. And then uh, once every quarter, they have this canteen or whatever, they can buy stuff. Maybe I should do that with you guys. <laughs> Bible bucks, all right? So in your Bibles, please turn with me to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. And before we start reading there, I just want to give you a little bit of background, or maybe we should start at 16. Verse 1, now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him? I've rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and move it. Go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I've selected a king for myself among his sons. And Samuel says, but how can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord says, well, take a heifer with you. Take a cow and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And you shall invite Jesse to, sac to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling and to meet him and said, do you come in peace? Do you come in peace? So that's kind of what we're going to be looking at today, but the context of it is in verse or chapter 15. And what we see from this whole narrative is that the Israelites, kind of like us, especially in our teenage years, we don't want to be different. We want to be like everybody else. So this nation was the same way. We want to be like everybody else. I know, yeah, yeah, it's cool to have God as our king, but we want to kind of be like everybody else. 
And yes, God, you do send, sometimes send judges or prophets, but we want a king. We want to be like everybody else. We want to be like everybody else. So the Lord relents, and this is what he's doing. And if you remember the story at all, we see Saul introduced, and he's an amazing, big, strapping man, a head taller than everybody else, and everybody's so terribly impressed. And they crown him as king, and Samuel does that too. Samuel gets to be the preacher that anoints him with oil, and he becomes the king of Israel. So here, he's the king, and he is... He's the king, and he is doing uh, his job, doing it well, apparently. But then all of a sudden, we see in chapter 15 that the Lord sends him out, and he sends him out to bring punishment, to bring discipline, to bring uh, judgment upon Amalek for what he did to Israel. At one point, uh, when Israelites w were traveling, the Am uh, Am Amalekites or whatever, they, they uh, did not show any kind of... Uh, kindness toward them and they made it actually hard on Israel so what God says is we're, they're going to pay for that and what happens is he gave them simply this instruction that they were supposed to go and bring judgment on the whole nation and utterly destroy everything don't spare anything so Saul does what he's told and he goes out and he does almost all of it just did most of it but not quite just almost. So in chapter 15, we see that Samuel comes onto the field, and there Saul goes, Hey, Samuel, how's it going? I did what God has told us to do. And he says, Why do I hear the bleeding of sheep in the background then? All he heard was through his senses, the hearing and the smelling of sheep. And he just knows that he smells and he hears disobedience. So there's a whole bunch that led up to this, but here this was the straw that broke the camel's back, or rather the sheep's back, and what happens here is the judgment comes upon Saul, and he says, now the kingdom will be ripped from your hands and given to somebody else. And we see, uh, really in this narrative, of a guy that started off right, seemed to have all the right stuff, the presence of God was with him, but it seems as though that the pride of life, he started to believe his reviews, the songs that everybody wrote, Saul has killed thousands. And he's going, yeah, that sounds good. Can you put that to a tune with maybe a little bit of a beat, 4-4 four, four beat, that'd be great. And he starts to believe the reviews, and now he thinks his success is not just God's success, but it's his success. So if God says, go and bring judgment on the nation and make sure you get rid of everything, he goes, oh yeah. And then he comes up with a great excuse. Kind of reminds me of me, maybe some of you, that you don't quite obey God, but then when you don't quite obey him, you got a great excuse. Well, God, I just kept the best of sheep. I, I kept them because I wanted to sacrifice to you. Praise the Lord. PTL, right? Uh, and, you know, Saul, I mean, Samuel, obviously, and the Lord can see right through this, and they see that this is a heart of pride and a heart of arrogance in a heart that is turned toward himself instead of God. Hard words to hear. And it was hard for the preacher, Samuel, because in chapter 16, we see God saying to Samuel, how, how long are you going to grieve over this? How long are you going to bellyache? How long are you going to be sad and depressed that I've rejected the servant? Now move it. Fill your horn with oil. It's time to get going. And I'm going to send you to Jesse 
tribe of Benjamin, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. And Samuel goes, and surely enough, he is scared. He says, well, how am I supposed to go? Saul's going to hear of it. And you know the songs, God, he's killed thousands. He's going to take me out. He says, go. And he told him what to do. So that's kind of the narrative that we have here. And as we chub it out just a little bit more, we see that as he enters into the village or he comes to it, he comes and the elders of the village, which are always standing at the city gates because that's the place for business, that's where the men met. And what happened there is as soon as they see him coming, they go, oh, great, Samuel's here. Because oftentimes the preacher would bring kind of bad news too. So the preacher came and they're going, do you come in peace or what's going on? They're trembling and their boots ready because they know Samuel has showed and displayed some incredible power through obviously God working through him. And now they're nervous. It's kind of a lame job and kind of lonely job because if you think about that, whenever you walk into town, people going, there's Samuel. Shoot, what do we do wrong now? But there was this anointing upon Samuel, a calling upon Samuel, and he was walking out in obedience to do what God had called him to do. So now you see these elders come around, you see other people checking out what's going on, and they brought together a sacrifice, because that's what he says, and he says, make sure that Jesse's family's there. So Jesse brings all of his all of his guys there, all of his sons, and he's got a great brood of sons. He's a proud man. His quiver is even fuller than mine. So he's got a quiver full of men, and the very first guy, obviously, is Eliab. And Eliab is obviously the choice of king. We all know that Eliab should be because He's the oldest. He's the strongest. I mean, this guy, when he walks into, him, into a room, you'd pay attention because he's dominant. You can smell him because he's a man's man. He doesn't wear deodorant, and he works hard, never changes his socks, and he wears big boots. Okay, this is a guy that comes in here, and you know that, okay, I'd follow that guy because nobody's going to mess with him. He's probably the big brother that puts all the other boys in place, grabs the younger guy by a headlock, gives him a noogie, and it's just like, ah, oh, can't stand it when Eliab does this, but I can't do anything about it because he's a beast. So Eliab obviously must be the choice for God. And Samuel goes, oh, perfect. And he uncorks the old oil. He's ready to do it. And he says, wait, what's going on? Very, very important verse. If you mark up your Bibles, and I think you should, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7 says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, for God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Isn't that great? Isn't that worth an amen? That's really cool. But we don't get it, do we? Like, honestly, we read that, but we still wake up in the morning and we spend a ton of time in that mirror because, or just put on that right thing because we are nervous what other people think about our appearance. And we got to spend a bit of time there because you don't want to see this guy on Sunday morning. And I've spent time. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, moving on. Um, I'm glad that God looks at 
the inside because there's times where I say something and it didn't come out right. And I may have hurt my wife's feelings or somebody's feelings. God knew my heart. Now, it doesn't mean I shouldn't make it right, but I'm just saying, oh God, I messed that one up. Like seriously. Or you say something and you take off your size 10 and you might as well jam it right in your mouth because it's something uh, totally misconstrued. It's just, I can't believe I just said that. God saw your heart, right? So there's times we do things or say things. And like I said, we still got to make it right. But I think it's pretty cool that God sees inside. And it's the flip side too. If you go out there and you don't care at all about littering, you eat your own Henry, you throw it out the window. All of a sudden, Helen comes up. Oh, Helen's here. She's from church. Just picking up the litter. That's right. And Helen sees it and she's going to, well, preacher, let me tell you, I saw Annette picking up litter. It's amazing. Bless her heart. Right? And everybody thinks now that she's a saint. But when God looks at the heart, he first of all sees even when we've done blunders, he sees what we meant. He sees the intent of our heart. But also when you're actually trying to snub the rest of us or dub the rest of us into thinking you're incredibly righteous and all that stuff, he sees the heart. And I love that. God looks at the inside of a person. And that should be a bit of an admonition for us because we spend so much time at the gym, so much time shopping, so much time doing our hair and all all that other stuff. And how much time, in comparison, do we hang out with the Lord? Do we spend time in the sword, the double-edged sword sharp that can change us? because the Holy Spirit uses it. How, how much money do you spend on hair products as opposed to spending time, maybe even blowing some money on a mentor and saying, I'd like you to mentor me. I want to become more like Jesus or I'm struggling with this anger. I'm struggling with this. You know what I'm saying? That's inside stuff. But we spend a lot of time and money on the outside stuff. On the outside stuff. I like how the Lord is guiding Samuel. And Samuel's not perfect either because obviously he's going, oh no, all my marbles were with Saul. I can't believe this. And finally, God just says, enough. Are you not done? And I like it because God guides him. God is patient with him, but he also says it's time to get a move on and he obeys. And I like it. There's a Blackaby wrote a book and you know, it's pretty good. At the end, it gets a little humdrum for me, but during a lot of it, I like it because he talks about God still guides. God still guides today. And what he likes to use is he likes to use uh, prayer time. He likes it when we come to him in prayer and meditation, carving out time to seek the face of the Lord. He likes to use that. He likes to use his word. Sometimes we just think that this word is old and it's just nice stories. But it's amazing how many times, and my wife's pretty good at this too, she opens it up and she meditates on the word of God and all of a sudden she gets direction. In fact, there's actually been times, really, there's been times where the Lord has given me a piece of scripture and I go, I think this is what I need to do, and I zip it. That evening, Jody opens up the Bible and she says, you know what, Steve, I think we need to do dot, 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 the very piece of scripture that I've been going through and we did not compare notes. I love that kind of stuff. God's word's powerful. God also uses and guides us uh, through God's people. I could tell you story upon story of Sunday school teachers, both good and bad examples, and uh, Mrs. Schapansky. I couldn't stand Mrs. Schapansky. 
boy, I could abuse that last name because that's what kids do when they don't like you. Take that last name and rhyme it with stuff, right? Well, Mr. Japansky, ah! I was so trying to be cool. I had high tops, you know, and I had wool socks pulled up over my sweats. I was looking good, James. You know, and I would be going down. Wouldn't time my high tops going down. I was the coolest ever, I thought, grade seven ever. And all of a sudden, Stephen, could I see you? <gasps> so I'd schlump my way into her classroom. And she goes, Steve, what's going on? What? <laughs> Why? Like, it just seems as though, like, you're a joyful guy. And you got so much leadership capability. And it just seems like you're starting to hang out with some guys. What? You know? And so she gives me, I couldn't stand it. In fact, I probably in my teenage brain almost hated this lady because she would call me on stuff. But she saw my potential and she would take the time to call me on it. And then, are we done? Okay, later. You know, and I'd walk out still cool. But she annoyed me so much. But yet I couldn't get her annoyance out of my head because she believed in me a lot more than I believed in myself. She saw past the Coolio crowd. She saw past the high tops. That must have been hard for her. And she saw all of it, and she could see that, Steve, what are you doing? She saw my heart, that I had way more potential, and she would call me on it. God uses God's people. God uses God's people. So it's really important. We are so lucky in our congregation to have a plethora of older and younger people. And I love it. That's one of our flags. I'm just going to nail that into the ground. If you come here and say, oh, there's so many old people. Well, Great. We have a, a rich gold mine of wisdom and of stories and accounts of God's faithfulness and all sorts of human struggle. Let's hang out together and learn from each other. God uses God's people. God uses prayer, God's word. And he also uses Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is alive and active, my friends. He really is. Those times where there's a knocking on the door of your heart, it doesn't make any sense for you to give this away or for you to stop and help that person or for you to just take a, a whole day and give it to somebody else or for Dan even to stop a lucrative job and be, become part of this whole mission thing. Like, what in the world? The Holy Spirit of God is alive and active and wants to work in your life. But it is kind of a spiritual muscle. If you're used to saying no, if you're used to being hardened toward him, if you're used to pushing him away, it's going to be harder and harder to hear his voice. So, assignment. The next time you just, even if it's a small whisper that Dan and Irene were talking about, that Elijah, just that listen in the wind. And it seems like the Lord's calling you to even the itsy bitsiest kind of detail of obedience. Do it. And your hearing will improve. Your obedience will improve your relationship with the Lord will improve. And then lastly, what Blackaby points out is he also, Lord also tends to use circumstances. And I say that lastly because I think that's sometimes the first one that we go to. We see our ducks in a row, circumstances, and we, oh, well, obviously I'm supposed to do this. And we haven't really saturated the matter in prayer or gone to God's word or gone to God's people. So prayer, meditation, in Scripture, God's word, God's people, Holy Spirit, and circumstances. He uses all this, and God guided Samuel. So first of all, we saw Eliab, and we thought this should have been the guy, this guy in steel toes, this guy that was obviously the leader of the whole gang. But it seems as though, what does he say to Samuel? I look at the heart, so keep moving. Okay, then he puts the cork back, and he's not ready to dump the oil at. So the next one comes up, and that's Abinadab. 
And Abinadab, if you can just imagine, because obviously I'm throwing in and shoving it out a little bit for you, but Abinadab, let's say that he's an intellectual snob. This guy, he goes to school, and he doesn't have to study because it comes all natural to him. Math, English, all that stuff, Hebrew, Aramaic, (laughs) you know, he can spend time doing whatever because it just comes so natural to him. And he has a tendency to be arrogant because he hangs out with his younger brothers and when his older brother's not in earshot he also mocks him out because he's kind of on the dumb side compared to Abinadab everything comes really easy for him as he puts on his glasses and he looks down on the ordinary dumb people through his arrogance so maybe maybe we need a king that's sharp and smart like Abinadab So you can see, imagine Samuel going for the cork. He puts the cork back and he waits again. Second one, that makes no sense to him. The third one, Shema. Shema, if you can imagine with him, maybe, maybe he's all looks. Maybe he's like a GQ model. Okay, so he's known for his good looks and his stylish dress. His, his hair's never out of place. He's clean shaven. He's always wearing the latest and the greatest, and he's always hanging out with the who's who's of people. This guy is looking for what's happening in, in the party crowd or in the culture crowd, and he's a part of it. If you hear a noise of an incredible party going on, you look into the middle of it, it's probably him. So you have this strong, athletic, whoa, who's who of the oldest guy. You have a really smart guy, and then you have this really good-looking guy. Obviously, I'm giving you um, more to the narrative here, but I'm just trying to give us what is the things that characterize these brothers, and what is it that Samuel looked at? What is it that he saw in these guys? And yet, God is saying, no, no, no. He rejects Abinadab, Eliab, and Shema. And then, If I had more of an imagination, I'd give you all the names of the other guys, but they're not said in Scripture. You know, Jethro and other things like that, right? Ben, Caleb, and all that stuff. But I'm not going to go there. And finally, Samuel's discouraged. He says, is this it? And you can see almost the crowd that had come around. It was really exciting because, I mean, you saw Samuel. He's ready to uncork. And it's just like, really? It wasn't Eliab? It wasn't Abinadab? Boy, things are getting desperate here. And I wonder if some of the crowd started even kind of fizzling off. But this is becoming kind of boring. This reality show is just like, yeah. And finally, Samuel goes, is that it? And it looks like it's it. And then Jesse kind of nonchalantly says, well, <laughs> well, there's the youngest. He's out taking care of the sheep. Well, I'll go get him. Oh, Really? Yeah, go get him. And you can see David. I don't know what's with David, but he's out there. He's the youngest. He's out playing with the sheep, you know, the youngest. He's not really working. He's playing. And the word, the Hebrew word that they use for David is hagaton. Hagaton. And it's interesting because with that word, it not only means the youngest, but it comes with undertones of insignificance. The insignificant one is taking care of the sheep. Or the runt of the litter is taking care of the sheep. The goat, no good for nothing. Oh, he's the baby. You know the baby. They get everything we want. He's out taking care of the sheep. And David comes in on the scene, still smelling like sheep, looking like he had been playing. He's all scruffled and all that other stuff. And he comes there. And I'm not sure what Samuel's thinking. We get a hint in just a bit. But he comes forward. And I'm not totally sure... 
if young David totally understands what's going on here. Samuel's given the green light. He takes out the cork. David probably gets on his knees. He says a few things of ceremony and he dumps the oil on this young lad's head. And the oil comes down, moving all the dirt that's around his face. And you see this young boy anointed as the king to be. It's an incredible story. It's an incredible story because right after that, it just seems as though everybody goes back to their work, but yet God still has more in store, which you're not gonna spend a lot of time on. But what happens right after that is who becomes disturbed in their spirit? Saul, right? So Saul, the the king of today, and he's so disturbed in the spirit, he needs something like, I don't know, music or something. And somebody gives him an idea. I I know a great musician. He's a bit of a ruddy young man, works with the sheep. He kind of smells and all that stuff, but he's pretty good at the lyre. Well, I'll bring him in. So you see all of a sudden God working and bringing this smelly young man into the kingdom. And I don't know, but it seems to me that's a fantastic opportunity for David to just see and be mentored what to do and what not to do as the king. He's sitting in the kingdom seeing how things work. He's being prepared and God puts him in this beautiful spot and the list goes on and on and on of, of the miracles that happen. But here I'm just absolutely blown away that first of all, we see this principle that God does not look at your resume, at your good looks, at your huge body or whatever it is. God looks at your heart. Now I have to smile because when I did see this one verse, I wondered, okay, who in the world wrote the book of Samuel? And I thought for a while, David must have wrote it. Because when it says that David came in on the scene, It says, he was ruddy and handsome and had beautiful eyes. Like, I'm going, what? (laughs) Obviously, David wrote it or he paid off Samuel to write that or something. I don't know. But I'm also sitting back going, or is it that Samuel still doesn't fully, fully, fully get it? Because this is the Lord's anointed. Awesome stuff's happening on the inside of this young man. And yet Samuel goes, but he's also ruddy, handsome, and his eyes are killer. I don't know. I just find that kind of a funny piece of the scripture. But we see here that Lord looks at the heart. A verse that's meant a lot to me over the years is 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are are not wise. Folks, it's a fact that we often compare ourselves in our looks or in our jobs or in how fit we are or in the significance of your job. We compare ourselves. I'm going to stick my neck out and even say sometimes you feel like a loser or a runt spiritually because you look and all of a sudden this guy talks about how he's meeting the Lord and how he's tight and he's heard from the Lord and he has devotions and he keeps a journal entry every day and you're going, oh wow, I'm struggling to do my devotions once a week. I think that can happen to us. We start comparing ourselves by others and it's just like we forget the whole principle of Samuel and David and the Lord. I'm not looking at your resume. 
I'm not looking at your looks. I'm not looking at your smarts. I'm looking at the inside of what makes you a man or a woman or a boy or a girl. God looks at the inside stuff. So I want to leave you with that. Maybe this morning you can see yourself. Maybe you've been a dominating Eliab. You've been intimidating to be around. You've been the master of your own destiny. You've always known what to do next and you've grabbed life by the horns and it's just like you need to pull back and humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And he will lift you up. You need to become a runt. Or maybe you're kind of like a Binadab and you have a ton of pride when it comes to your intellect. You're really smart. You get stuff really easy. You got all sorts of useless detail in that cranium of yours, but you're going like, yeah, check this out. Everybody knows you're smart. And yet we can hide behind the pride of that intellect and not be all that usable for the Lord. You got to become a runt. Or maybe you're like Shema and, and you don't offer a lot of brawn, nor do you offer a lot of smarts, but man, you're good looking. Or you're really popular. Or you're a part of the culture. You're a party guy and you get to go into a crowd and everybody likes to hang out with you because you're so popular. People want a piece of you. You got a billion friends on Facebook. But it seems, again, that the Lord is interested in you becoming a runt so that he can use you. It seems as though that God wants to use runts like my little gussy dog here and David. It's because when we are weak, then he is strong. So this morning or this week, can we look at that? Is there an area of your life where you need to become more runtish? where you need to, even though perhaps you have good reason why you're a strong personality or you're a strong intellect or you are a party girl, whatever. I don't know. But this week, let's set aside who we think we are and allow the Holy Spirit to do a work in our lives of humility. Listen for that still small voice. And if he's calling you to something, even if it's so insignificant, do it. And let's see a whole church load or a whole building full of spiritual runts that'll be used in this world, in this hurting culture, and that we would be raised up by the power of the Lord to do mighty things in our families, in our communities, and in our marriages. Runts for the Lord. How's that sound? Change the, change the name of the church, eh? Church of the Runt. Welcome. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you. Uh, I, I thank you for real, real life stories, good stuff. And I thank you that it's not just stories. These are accounts, real life accounts of you working in the lives of real people. And Father, I ask that this morning you'd be with me and be with my friends here. And uh, Lord, that if there's an area that you want to put your finger on this week, that Lord, you'd help us to respond that, Lord, if we have been struggling with pride of our strength, with pride of our connections, with pride of our good looks, with pride of our intellect, Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us to be sensitive now, 
that we would humble ourselves before the almighty God and that, Lord, you would speak to us and we would listen and follow you the way that Samuel did. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.